Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. We are going to hear another excerpt from the Lockout Lockheed Forum that was held a few weeks ago at Melbourne Uni. Just to give you a rundown of the people you're going to hear in this um, this discussion around the militarisation of our public institutions, Sam Castro is the MC. She's from Friends of the Earth and WACA. Uh, she's interviewing... First, you'll hear from Alex Edney-Brown. Uh, Alex Edney-Brown is an academic looking at the impact of Lockheed Martin's technology, specifically drones and surveillance, on the people that are surveilled and bombed by the drones. Uh, then you'll hear from Lisa Ling. Lisa actually operated drones and eliminated targets as a technical sergeant in the Air Force. And finally, hear from Vince Emmanuel, who served two tours of Iraq and now works to undo the military-industrial complex around the world. Thanks, Vince. So, Alex, Vince just brought up a really good point, which is how does this technology in your research impact cultural, social components and the, the kind of, I guess, pathway for research in universities when it's being funded by these entities who have a very distinct agenda and objective to get out of that, which I'm assuming that uh, any of the research done in this lab, Lockheed Martin will gobble that up and use it. Um, yeah, so my research tries to illustrate the horrors of the war on terror Um, and also how counterproductive it's been. So we're 16 years into the war on terror, and if anything, terrorism has increased. And the people who are mostly victims of terrorism are people living in countries like Afghanistan and Iraq. They're not Westerners, right? So when we say that we want uh, good outcomes against terrorism, that's actually a statement that ought to be, but often isn't, about protecting the lives of people in those countries. Um, So I find that... um, with the research lab, it's often talked about as uh, in these press releases as a way in which Australia and Australian universities will do their part in the war on terror and in uh, uh, promoting Australia's defence um, and protecting civilians in those countries. And we need to interrogate all of those claims because they've actually got no ground to stand on. Um, the research produced at the Lockheed Martin lab will go to weapons development. It will go to things like drones um, and the kind of surveillance programs that drones rely on. Um, and from my interviews with people in Afghanistan and with my interviews uh, with US Air Force veterans, that technology has a horrendous impact on their lives. Um, it psychologically traumatizes them to live under the possibility of being taken out by a drone attack or by having their relatives taken out by a drone attack. Um, On a psychological level, you've just got to imagine living under surveillance possibly 24 hours a day, you don't know, Um, and that your activity may be mistaken from someone who has no understanding of your culture 
as something that is uh, possibly suspicious and warrants death. So this is the kind of thing that Lockheed Martin is a huge part of. And for the press releases to say, oh no, it's not about that, it's about our students being involved in cutting-edge science and technology research, that is just an absolute whitewashing of what these companies do, right? You can produce cutting-edge science and technology research without helping a weapons manufacturer. Um, and it's going to be counterproductive for the war on terror. These are not defensive technologies. The, the defense white paper that was released last year itself admits that um, there isn't actually any legitimate threat of attack against Australia on Australian soil. So we need to think of this as, as offensive technologies. And if they're drawing that line, which it sounds like they are, that the lab's just going to be used for <coughs> defensive technologies, we have a lot of... Um, evidence to show that that's just not the case, that that dichotomy that they've created there is a false one. Thank you. Uh, Lisa, just building on Alex's comments, are, does the same thing happen in universities in America? Or is it presented as this extraordinary opportunity for uh, PhD students to, or, or university students to engage in cutting-edge technology like you know, we couldn't do that without arms manufacturers being involved in the research programs. Is it whitewashed in a similar way? So what I've observed here is that for, I think, the last maybe two or three years, there's been a huge um, push for people to study STEM. Um, there's been some changes in, in the schools and what have you. And what's been happening in Australia is that um, Australia has made a lot of headway in certain biomechanical innovations and I believe that the military industrial complex follows the technology in some ways and directs some of the research that that is happening and, and what this does is is it I mean it just it's so devastating for university students for I mean universities should stay outside of taking a side they're the ones that you know they're the ones that are supposed to take an objective view of what is going on and when universities are being infused by so much money from the military industrial complex for certain types of research um, there's no way to remain impartial any longer it's just all bad it's not and the other thing too is my experience with it is it's not cutting edge technology. A lot of it is taking technology that has existed in the scientific community. For example, the, the algorithms that are used in artificial intelligence have been used in the scientific community for years. The technologies that are involved in, in this program have been around for a very long time. Um, and the newer technologies are being assimilated into this thing that we call the DCGS, which in itself is a weapon system. So, I mean, it's so big and so beyond oversight and so beyond legislation. And just every time you turn around, a university has been assimilated into the system. And, you know, we didn't used to have secret compartmentalized information facilities within the context of public education or even private education. And these things are being normalized now and... Um, as a group of people who are concerned, we really need to get out in front of this. 
Yeah, that you just read my mind. I was just thinking in my head just the insidious nature of normalisation and militarisation through our institutions. Vince, could you speak to that a little bit? Just, you know, in America, it's obviously the national identity of America is very much wrapped up in its military prowess. Uh, but how do you see sort of the militarisation of your communities being normalised in the States? Well, that happens on multiple levels. <clears throat> Excuse me, I mean, immediately culture on the cultural level, this has proliferated through the news media, through TV programs, through music, through television, uh, movies, Hollywood films especially, and all the rest, and even professional sports. So both the Pentagon has contracts with the NFL, which is the largest uh, watch sporting uh, franchise in the United States, and also with Hollywood. So if Hollywood wants to use military equipment, then people from the Pentagon and the military have a final say over the editing process of those films. Uh, so what makes the cut, what doesn't make the final cut is decided by military generals and Pentagon officials, uh, if indeed those directors want to use those things. So I mean, that, this is proliferated both in the culture and then also here in the United States, you see uh, and a great historian uh, to read on this topic is Alfred McCoy, who's a historian from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's been writing about for many decades now how the U.S. has been using counterinsurgency tactics abroad and then bringing those tactics and those strategies and those technologies back home. This predates the modern era and actually goes back to the Spanish-American <coughs> War uh, in 1998. So the kinds of counterinsurgency tactics that the United States used in the Philippines during the Spanish-American War was then brought home and used against communists, anarchists, and socialists and union members who were organizing to fight for unions in the United States. That was then used again in Vietnam, the counterinsurgency tactics and strategies and equipment that was used in Southeast Asia and Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam was brought back to the United States and used on the streets in the 1970s and 80s by an increased and further militarized police force. And so today we see, after 40 years of the war on drugs, after 16 years of the war on terror, and completely militarized U.S. society from our culture to our educational system to our uh, police force to our military and so on. And so at the university level, I'm thinking of many different components. So at universities, I'm thinking of the campus police. So campus police in the United States are now carrying assault rifles. They're also carrying military equipment, driving military vehicles, and wearing bulletproof vests and tactical gear. Um, students in the United States, for instance, in the state of Texas, on community campuses, it is now legal to carry a firearm. So students in Texas can now carry guns to school, further militarizing the, or further militarizing, uh, the, the campuses. Uh, and then professors. So you'll see in the United States uh, war criminals such as Henry Kissinger, Donald Rumsfeld, Paul Wolfowitz, Condoleezza Rice will often get very high positions in some of the most prestigious colleges in the United States. So at universities like Brown and Princeton and Harvard and Yale, you will see some of the most blatant sort of militarists and war criminals in the United States US foreign policy realm. They will be teaching there uh, in sort of the most, in the highest capacity imaginable. So everything from the students to the campus police, to then the professors, to then 
as people have mentioned, the research and development. Uh, just to give you some numbers of what the Pentagon is interested in, uh, of all of the funding that they're giving, and this is hundreds of billions of dollars year in and year out, this is both in the form of official funds, classified funds, and then also grants that are given out uh, by DARPA and various other agencies. But 75% of their money is going towards electrical and mechanical engineering. 35% uh, of the funds are going to uh, metallurgy and material science. I'm sorry, so out of these uh, different disciplines, this is how much of their funding is coming from the military. Math and computer sciences, 40%. Uh, over $100 billion on R&D spent uh, annually. And those numbers are very unclear because U.S. Congress has been unwilling to release official data even to the university professors who will officially testify to Congress. So it's extremely difficult to get the exact numbers of how much money is actually being spent in the U.S. in universities from the Pentagon. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. Hello, I'm Duncan Graham, and this is Episode 9 of Over the Wall. Today, we speak to Josh Cullinan, Secretary of the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, about his involvement in one of the most significant industrial cases of the last decade. When the Fair Work Act replaced John Howard's much-hated work choices system in 2009, Enterprise Agreements had a brand new fairness test called the BOOT. This acronym stood for the Better Off Overall Test and meant that when a new Enterprise Agreement went in front of the Fair Work Commission for ratification, the Commissioners had to be confident that every worker would be better off overall on the agreement when compared to the relevant award. If the agreement failed that test, it could not be instituted. The boot was used spectacularly against Coles in 2015 and 2016 when an energetic trio of a unionist, a barrister and a meat worker managed, after 10 gruelling months, to have the 2015 Coles Enterprise Agreement torn up by the Fair Work Commission. At Over the Wall, we believe this case offers many insights into how large businesses, especially in retail and fast food operations, seek to rip off their workers and bludgeon dissent. Over the next few weeks, you will hear in great detail how the Fair Work Commission operates and how a single worker, with some help, can liberate 78,000 of his fellow employees from an unjust agreement. I recently spoke to Josh Cullinan, the key unionist in the Coles case. I began by asking him about his history of involvement in workers' rights from his early days in the Young Christian Workers and beyond. I started at Woolworths, it was Safeway at the time, in 1993, and I worked in various jobs there, and I then went on to work at service stations, and I tried to organise and unionise service stations. 
the employee association that represents workers in that space and was never interested in helping unionise small workplaces or even medium workplaces that didn't have a relationship with it. And that was something I became acutely aware of as I was a community development organiser for the YCW. And I was working with lots of young workers, uh, working at fast food and retail, and we were finding that their conditions were remarkably poor and that every time they tried to do something about it, they weren't getting any support from the employee association that was supposed to represent them. I then went off and tried to get a job at a union, and it was about 2002. I went for a job at the SDA, the Shoppies Union, and I was asked in my interview if I was prepared to join the ALP and then go to state conference for the ALP and vote against abortion rights, vote against homosexual rights and gay marriage, vote against IVF, stem cell research. It was made clear in the interview that they were preconditions of employment with the SDA. I was fortunate enough in that month to land a job at the CFMEU and I went and worked for the CFMEU for two and a half years. While I was there I continued working with uh, young workers. We helped form the Young Unionist Network at Victoria Trades Hall and I was involved in the ACTU Youth Committee. I then went and worked for the NTEU, the National Tertiary Education Union, for 12 years in their national, state and local branch offices. Ran some fantastic campaigns with casual workers and others. All through this time, I was doing more work with retail and fast food workers. So I helped with some of the Unite campaigns at Baker's Delight and 7-Eleven and of various other activities along that pathway. The SDA is one of the largest unions in Australia with 230,000 members. It was the chief negotiating partner with Coles in writing its 2011 Enterprise Agreement, which was coming up for renegotiation from 2014 onward. Josh Cullinan told me how he became involved in the campaign to impeach the new Enterprise Agreement. In 2014, I became aware that Coles was bargaining for a new agreement and I spoke with the Meat Workers Union, the AMIEU, and participated with some of their actions in trying to draw awareness to the wage cuts that were being perpetrated against their members that had long been applied to other workers at Coles. And in May in 2015, I found out that the agreement had gone to workers for a vote. I was able to get a copy of the agreement and I spoke to a worker who worked at a deli in the western suburbs of Melbourne. And so I got some rosters from this deli in the western suburbs of Melbourne and did an analysis and it showed that more than two-thirds of the workers were going to earn less under the agreement than the minimum rates award. I was confident that neither the SDA nor the employer, Coles, had told the Fair Work Commission that. And so I did up a 10-page analysis and sent it off to the Fair Work Commission and asked them to take it into account. And I also spoke with some journalists about what had been going on and explained the math of it. It's not particularly difficult math. It's pretty straightforward. If you give up a 25% loading after 6pm on a weeknight and you get a 7 or 8% loading in return, you're going to be worse off. That analysis then led to the Fair Work Commission asking Coles to make some undertakings. They had already also cut the wage rates of 17 and 18 year olds and they'd cut the casual loading from 25% to 20%. All of that added up to very many workers being worse off. Unfortunately, the Fair Work Commission sought undertakings which didn't deal with the vast majority of workers. So after it had approved the agreement with undertakings that cost Coles about $15 million a year, a worker, a chap called Duncan Hart from Brisbane, contacted me and asked me to help him appeal that decision to approve the agreement. So we then worked with the barrister, Siobhan Kelly, to run the case, which ended up taking 10 months, to overturn the agreement that had been made by Coles that cost workers somewhere around 70 to to $100 million a year. The SDA and Coles worked 
together to try to derail Duncan Hart's case. The first few months were taken up with a fight over the legitimacy of both Duncan Hart and himself, as Josh explained. The very first step was Coles sought to challenge the application on the grounds that I was the real appellant and that Duncan was effectively my patsy. And that immediately took up two months of dealing with barristers as well as very well-resourced law firms from the SDA and from Coles working together to try and expose something that just didn't exist. They trawled through all of our SMSs, our messages. They published all of my Twitter feed. They took photos of my kids, and they put all of that into evidence to try and identify that there was something untoward happening. The appeal was lodged in July 2015. It wasn't until the end of October 2015 that that was actually dealt with and their attempt to strike out the application was knocked off. An essential ingredient in determining the boot is the evidence of existing rosters so that individual workers can have their entitlements under the proposed agreement tested against the relevant award. Getting comprehensive rosters would become the next hurdle to be jumped and again, Coles did not make it easy. Josh Cullinan next outlined how this played out. The next stage was for us to try and put in new evidence about what had happened. And so we sought various documents to be produced by Coles. And again, another two months was spent with Coles trying to fight the production of documents. And these were documents such as how Coles came to the conclusion that the agreement was better off overall, how it put in a statutory declaration saying that, and more pointedly, uh, rosters from stores so that we could do a thorough analysis person by person of exactly how many were being ripped off under this agreement. You can imagine Coles fought that tooth and nail. There was one bizarre hearing we had in November where they put on a HR person to say they can't possibly give us the 77,000 rosters because it takes a half a day to produce each roster. And we asked under cross-examination, well, how do you know it takes that long? And the HR manager said, well, I asked for it. I am so important that it would have been done instantly. And it took them three and a half hours to get it back to me. So clearly it takes three and a half hours for each roster. And that means it's going to take however many years to provide the rosters that Duncan Hart wanted. In the end, after all of that shenanigans, we ended up with rosters for two stores, a Northcote store and a Banella store. The Northcote store, for those that don't live or shop near Northcote, it's a small community plaza and it has two coal stores. It has two coal stores because they land bank, they don't want Woolworths to get in there or IGA. They chose the smaller of the two stores. It's got the fifth narrowest opening hours of all stores in Victoria. So they were trying to find a store that had very few opening hours, didn't have any night fill, so that the data analysis would look good for them. The data analysis showed 65% of those workers were worse off. They chose another store in Benalla. I went and visited it just to understand how it worked. It had four registers. It had about 30 staff. Uh, It was a very small store. Again, trying to influence the way the data worked. Now, Duncan Hart, Josh Cullinan and Siobhan Kelly had clear evidence of large numbers of employees failing the boot. It was time to get back to the Fair Work Commission to present their evidence. Next week, Josh Cullinan will take us through the second half of the case, how it was finally won, and we'll hear about a new case that seeks to take that victory even further. We would like to thank Mr Cullinan for his time and insights.
second part of our Lockout Lockheed Forum, we're going to hear from Callum Simpson, who's a student activist of the Lockout Lockheed um, group at the University of Melbourne, about that institution's uh, behaviour specifically and also their obligations to their staff and students. Uh, Lisa then joins the conversation to talk about the experiences of university students and professors in the States and around the world as the military the military dollars flood institutions. The MC once again is Sam Castro from WACA and Friends of the Earth. Um, Melbourne University, uh, just to add to what Vince was saying, and I guess we're opening the conversation now into sort of the way that the embedding and the uh, capturing of the military into our institutions is spreading everywhere um, and how it's interlinked to other issues. So Melbourne University does not have a good track record at the moment for being a very ethical corporation. And as we know, um, you know, military conflict leads to environmental destruction, resource theft, extractivism, colonialism, and then, of course, ultimately creates massive uh, movements of refugees and the circle goes round and round again that enables more anti-terror, harsher totalitarian measures, some might say fascists. Uh, Can you talk to us about Melbourne Uni's uh, current interlinked issues (laughs) around ethical nature? I'll do my best. It's almost too much to talk about. Um, Not quite as terrifying as what American colleges sound like at the moment, so that's one good. Um, Talking about... Uh, where that kind of thing is heading with this interconnectedness. Um, uh, Kim Beasley, former Labour um, leader, US, US ambassador, now sits on um, the board of Lockheed Martin Australia. So if you think the organised left is going to come to the rescue in the form of the Labour Party or the Democrats, forget it. Um, <laughs> yes. So like you're starting to see these connections growing and you're starting to see these companies come into universities and... Daniel Andrews, progressive premier of Victoria, inviting BA systems to build tanks at Fisherman's Bend. Yeah, it's it's starting to show the symptoms of something terrifying. Uh, Melbourne University, um, the administration is completely disconnected, in my opinion, from the student body, from the staff, from the many different faculties. And yet there's this complete disconnect. The the vast majority, um, the Fossil Free Campaign did some... Did some polling. They, they they polled as many students and staff as they could um, in previous years. Uh, not the vast majority of people do not support their money, their work um, going towards extractive industries such as coal companies and oil and gas. Not, nevertheless, um, the university has dragged its feet for years on doing anything about divesting from fossil fuels. Yeah, so it's it's, it's just the tip of the iceberg. I think it's, it's symptomatic of more to come. And we do have to recognise that, as Sam was pointing out quite rightly, that um, the flow-on effects for both fossil fuel companies and weapons manufacturers are enormous. Weapons manufacturers are the world's largest carbon emitters. And what is that going to lead to? That's going to lead to a refugee crisis, as many island nations are forced un- underwater. And then that very same military will have lots of... Um, uh, time and money to sort that out. So it, it's going the wrong way, and no one's talking about it um, on a state, federal level at all. And so 
we need to force that as a community. We need to start here with this one lab and say, this is unacceptable, this is our money, our campus, get off, this is not acceptable. But after that, need to move on to getting Dan, Daniel Andrews, guilt him for supporting this, guilt everyone else for supporting it. So yeah, tip of the iceberg and a little bit terrifying, but we can do something. Thanks, Cullen. Uh, Cullen's also worked with quite a few people in this room that have been working on the Boycott Wilson's campaign through WACA to get Wilson security out of our communities as well. And Melbourne University very quietly let go of Wilson security earlier this year. Uh, clearly, there's a lot of brand damage to be had if you're in the business of abusing people. Uh, so I think there's a lot of hope that, you know, killing people is probably up there as unethical and, and not the way the university should be going. Alex, I'm going to come back to you in a minute to dive more into bases, but I just want to get some comments from Lisa and Vince. Uh, just, you know, I, I think perhaps what Cullen was talking about, this intersection between environment, land rights, you know, poisoning... Uh, components of our world. Uh, for me, this all goes back to 9-11 that seemed to usher in this really sort of um, collective global in Western democracies, democracies anyway, erosion of uh, civil rights, of environmental rights, uh, of community rights. And I'm thinking, of course, to all of our mates that were uh, over in America up at Standing Rock in the big battle over the pipeline, I just wondered, Lisa and Vince, starting with Lisa, could you just comment about those intersections? Because I know the Pentagon recently put out a uh, paper saying that the two biggest threats that they see coming for the US empire and the US military are, of course, climate change and resistance to authority. Uh, and I think the example that they gave was Arab Spring, and their recommendation was to increase the capacity of the military-industrial complex to deal with both of these issues. Now, this seems like it's it's clearly going to be something like Standing Rock, where it's turned on either First Nations people or the community, where we become the target of that militarisation and resistance to authority. So, Lisa, could you start us off and maybe just talk about how you see that pattern playing out from your perspective? So I was noticing, um, well, first, um, just to clarify, I did spend several months at Standing Rock because I've come to the conclusion that the news media is not the most trustworthy source of information, so I've tried to get first-hand accounts. And some of the interesting things that I found is that the definition of critical infrastructure has become militarized. In my worldview, a source of drinking water for hundreds of thousands of people would be, to me, critical infrastructure. And yet, they're risking um, damaging that water supply for a pipeline that they're calling critical infrastructure. And the other thing that, um, that's been happening a lot in the intersectionality of what's going on and people protesting, so the thing that we haven't talked about with regards to uh, climate change and all that is that rare earth minerals are required for all of this technology, which is going to be, you know, another kind of drilling that's starting to go on the uptake. Um, the United States military is one of the largest consumers of fuel products and one of the largest polluters of our environment. Um, 
also the way things are being framed and worded. So recently today I read three articles and I went and surfed them up. Um, and they're starting to call people from Black Lives Matter black identity extreme so that they can fall under some sort of umbrella so that they can be addressed by this homeland security ecosystem that's just growing and spawning in all kinds of places. Um, and, and black identity extremist, as far as I know, that's never been something that's quote unquote existed on any side of a legal framework. Um, and the other thing is what they called um, uh, Julian Assange, regardless of what people think of him, they came up with a name so that they could put him under this, you know, like this uh, militarized police kind of FBI, CIA, uh, what I call alphabet suit, they called him as part of a non-state non hostile intelligence service. And then this really new thing that I find most disturbing is now there's this thing called temporary battle spaces that is the name for something that is not a war zone. And, I, and I'm, not, I, you know, I'm not really sure about it, but it seems to me they want it to fall under the AUMF. So again, these things are going beyond legislation, beyond governance, beyond, um, and it's all connected. It's connected with, um, I mean, the intersectionality of uh, just, you know, prejudice, global warming, um, just, I mean, it's, it's permeated everything and now even more so our educational institutions, which will just, you know, create fertile ground for it to do nothing but grow. assistance with daily tasks? Do your parents or grandparents? Australian Multicultural Community Services is a not-for-profit organisation providing help at home to seniors and their carers in Melbourne and Greater Geelong. Daily tasks like dressing, vacuuming, shopping or gardening can be difficult for seniors. Australian Multicultural Community Services support all eligible seniors with home care and personal care so that they remain independent while living at home. Get your loved ones the care they need. Call 9689 9170 to find out more. That's 9689 9170. A 3CR supporter. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.